Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the former Secretary of State for International Development, Rory Stewart. He's also a former soldier, writer, diplomat, and of course, more recently, podcaster. And is the co-host of the hit show, The Rest is Politics, which he records with Alistair Campbell. And now, given Rory's background, we could easily have had a labyrinth-like discussion on the state of the world, politics, economics, and international diplomacy. Instead, in this episode, we discuss with Rory his new role as president of the charity Give Directly. Now, as the name suggests, Give Directly provides a platform for donors to give cash directly to people living in poverty across the world who need it most. Now, in this episode, Rory sets out the purpose of the charity, the reason he joined it, the problem it's addressing, and we explore what life is like for the circa 700 million people living on less than $2 a day. Now, this is a really simple idea, but it's underpinned by a library of academic papers. I would thoroughly recommend you check out their website at givedirectly.org. Rory was a lovely guest. He's fully in charge of his own thoughts. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Rory Stewart, welcome to the podcast. There are a number of avenues that we could talk about, but we want to focus on on your newest role as president of Give Directly. And so I want to start by hearing from you the value proposition of Give Directly and kind of the elevator pitch, if you will. So Give Directly is a charity which focuses on addressing extreme poverty. And it works with people who are living on less than $2 a day. And I think the first thing to try to convey to people is just the extremity of that, what that means in somebody's life. That means that somebody is unlikely to eat more than once a day. And frequently they may not be eating once a day. They will be frequently living in a mudroom they may not have a latrine. Many of their children will not be in school. There will be serious problems with malnutrition. They are on the edge of very, very extreme destitution, which in many cases is, is life-threatening. And it is, in a big picture, a great shame for the world because the world is now very wealthy. And there are different ways of calculating this, but addressing the needs of all the people in extreme poverty and lifting them out of extreme poverty is something that could probably be done for about 0.1% of global GDP at the moment. And it's something that the United Nations and others have talked about for decades, ending extreme poverty in the world and have failed to do. So Give Directly addresses it through something which is both quite simple and quite radical, which is to provide direct cash assistance to the poorest communities in the form of grants. And it's unexpected because obviously much of the tradition of international development and charities over the last 50, 60 years has been precisely about not giving people cash. It's been about turning up and and teaching people or training people. It's miraculous though, because what we've discovered rather counterintuitively through more than 300 different academic studies, is that there is nothing really as powerful in addressing extreme poverty as cash because it has the miraculous benefit of allowing the recipient, allowing the person living in poverty to determine where their needs are, where their priorities are, and to allocate their money accordingly. 
So one house, let's take a village in Rwanda, might be focused on getting their children to school. Another one could be on the edge of a starvation. Another one could have a, their house might be collapsing. Another one might have the opportunity to connect to electricity and they can adjust very, very quickly to all those different needs. So in essence, supporting Give Directly is about asking individual people to give money directly to the poorest people in the world. And we are able to connect the donor and the recipient so that you have a direct relationship. You can see who you're giving the money to and you can see the difference it's making to their life. I want to come back to the sort of technology aspect of Give Directly, but just thinking about the sort of addressable market in inverted commas, I mean, how many people are at that bottom rung of society who are living on $2 a day? About 700 million people globally. So it's a very large number of people. And there was a lot of optimism that this would disappear. And that's partly because in China, for example, there was a lot of progress in getting rid of extreme poverty. Some of it, incidentally, actually through doing exactly this, through doing cash grants. But in places like Africa, there are more people living in extreme poverty today than there were in 1980. And because of extreme droughts, for example, so Horn of Africa, Somalia is drought for four years you have more and more people going into poverty more rapidly than one could ever expect. And it's been made worse by the Russia-Ukraine war and other things. So it's a large number of people. Give Directly has so far managed to reach out to just over a million people, which is a beginning, but we have a long way to go. Does Give Directly exist because other routes to distribution of aid has failed? And if so, why has it failed? Well, it's very difficult to explain. I mean, I was the Secretary of State for International Development, so I was responsible for what was then a £13 billion a year budget with DFID. And the truth is that if you go and see programs on the ground, it is staggering often how little people get for the money that they give. If you compare the amount of money that has been donated to a program, I remember seeing a program in Zambia where $40,000 had been allocated for water and sanitation in the school. And all that had come out at the end of it were two brick latrines costing maybe $2,000 and five red plastic buckets. And that sounds very shocking, but it's not very unusual because an enormous amount of money is absorbed in management costs, project teams, engineers, people doing needs assessments. And Charities and development agencies will not even describe those things as overheads. They'll try to say that all their in-country costs, so all their engineers and staffs going out to teach to that school is part of the program costs. The only things they'll call overheads are their offices in London or, or in New York. But the truth is that if you were to do a thought experiment and think what could happen if you simply gave the $40,000 directly to that school and trusted the head teacher and the board of that school to get on with it, or even gave much less. I mean, let's say you gave $5,000. They probably achieve much more than you would achieve by spending $40,000 through, in that case, traditional United Nations mechanisms. And turning to the technology, I mean, how does it actually work in practice? Are you on the SWIFT network? How does the money actually reach those in need? So we rely on the fact that in Africa, mobile money dominates. Most people now in Africa do their banking with their mobile telephone. They receive money on their phone and they pay for things with the phone in the same way as you would with a debit card. They send a text message to buy something as small as a packet of biscuits or transfer some money to a relative or pay for something. 
So what we do is we deliver money directly to people's phones. And if, in the case of the very poor in rural areas, they don't have phones, we issue them with cheap phones, which cost six, seven dollars a go. And uh, in some cases, like Liberia, we've even worked with mobile telephone companies to build mobile telephone masts. The advantage of that is there's no government, there's no middlemen. The money is received directly by the recipient. The other advantage is we can have a very good idea by analyzing the mobile telephone data on how they're using the money. We can pick up on any incidences of anything that seems strange, anything that might seem like fraud, and get very, very accurate data on spending patterns, which is also very helpful for making our case. I mean, you must get this question a lot, but how is giving money directly not inflationary? And perhaps at sort of the micro level, it isn't. But there must be a sort of tipping point where if you are giving money, handing out money, Andrew Yang style, directly, it becomes inflationary. Yes, it would if you were handing out enormous sums of money, which were a very large proportion of the GDP of a country. But sadly, the extreme poor in these countries are a very, very small part of the economy. And giving 500 even $550 a head to a very large number of extreme poor people makes a very small component of the GDP. Let's take the most extreme example. Imagine you were going to, over a three-year period, give money to everybody in extreme poverty in a country like Rwanda. It would still annually only involve about 3% of the GDP of the country. So the inflationary impacts are much more limited than you'd think. And, and we've actually done big studies that are regional level in Kenya and found almost no inflationary impacts because generally the market responds very, very quickly to the cash as it comes in. One economist said a way of thinking about it would be to think as an experiment what would happen if you gave a, a large amount of support to, I don't know, very poor people in Northumberland. It wouldn't have much impact on the prices on Amazon because the discrepancy between the amount of money that you're giving them and the the market mechanisms which are feeding them means that actually that additional demand doesn't have much effect on inflation. I'm going to ask almost the opposite question, which is, is there an argument to say that this is disinflationary? You mentioned China, but wind back to 2001 when uh, China joined the WTO, we basically introduced 1.2 billion people into the world trading system. Now, wind forward to now, is there a case for introducing your 700 million people into the world trading system. If we did that, could that be an underpinning disinflationary force in the world? Well, I think that's very exciting. I mean, I, I wish I was able to, to raise the money to address the 700 million extreme poor, but I think it can be done. I mean, it's not a completely unrealistic idea because the global development community, the, the UN, the World Bank, the USAID, these big government agencies, give about 160 billion a year at the moment. And they don't have much impact on extreme poverty because very little of that money is actually given directly to the extreme poor. If one can imagine convincing them by demonstrating on a national level the impact it could have that they began putting more of that money in, I absolutely think bringing 700 million more people into the market as consumers could be very, very beneficial for global economy in a whole series of dimensions, not just in terms of controlling inflation, but also in terms of what the consumption will mean for productive capacity of other people. There's many different things that happen. And I mean, this is something that, that listeners on your podcast will be very familiar with, but money is rather miraculous. We've studied big impacts in Kenya and 
sort of counterintuitively, giving a dollar to a poor person seems to result in about $2.40 worth of benefit. And not just a benefit to the village where we've given the money, but even to neighboring villages because the money spills over quite quickly. Some of that's pretty straightforward. You know, many villages will use the money to repair the roof on their house, which of course involves bringing in builders and material from neighboring communities to do the roof on their house. Others will simply have a small shop and they'll be buying more goods for their shop. But it also operates simply through consumption. So if you're running a barber's shop and you have one customer a day and more money comes into the village, you end up with six customers a day. And that has a very dramatic (laughs) impact on your income, your savings, your investment every year. So it's both that people make very productive use of the money. They will buy a solar panel, they'll buy a motorbike, they'll invest in their shop. But also the sheer mechanisms of consumption, just having more cash in the economy also benefits the economy. That's essentially the multiplier effect of giving directly. I wonder, is there a sort of limit? You know, you talk about maybe giving someone $30 a month or $50 a month. If you give them $500, $700, where's the sort of tipping point? Where's the sort of edge of your argument? We have um, tried to do a lot of academic studies on this. A recent study suggests that a sweet spot in terms of a one-time transfer to somebody, a large one-time transfer, is about $550. There are benefits of giving more than that, but the returns seem to diminish. So in terms of a very poor person, probably if you were looking for the most efficient way of allocating money, there is academic research at the moment that suggests that something in the region of $550 for an individual has a very dramatic impact over time on their savings, their investment, their consumption. And dollar for dollar is the most efficient way of graduating or having a hope of graduating someone out of poverty through cash. But remember that even with 300 academic studies, there's still a lot of things that we don't know. We understand the basic mechanisms of cash. Different communities can be different one from the other. These figures may change over time. But at the moment, our evidence is drawing us to about $550 as the total sum. And that could be stretched, as you say, over a few months, or that could be something given in a couple of payments. There's a quote on the website that says, you know, do the recipients just spend it on booze? And, you know, the answer is, of course, no. But I wonder, you know, when you track the allocation of capital, are there any sort of worries about where it's being spent? Yes, there's always worries. Um, Remember, of course, that That is true not just when you give cash to someone. That's true with almost anything you do. But one of the things that we, in in international development, it's true if you think that you want to do a contract for building a school. A lot of money can go missing in corruption and contractors. It can be true if you send food aid to people. Militia groups can steal the food aid. So there's almost nothing that you can do in international development that doesn't have a risk of fraud or diversion. But We believe in being radically transparent and honest about any cases of fraud, and we publish them on our website. And that can sometimes be a bit embarrassing. I've sat in um, meetings with other charities, and people have said, what are your incidents of fraud? And and I will say, you know, 0.3%, and the other charities will say zero. And I'll think, are you really sure it's zero? Of course, even if a little bit goes missing, it's so much more efficient because the money lands directly with people. We do have monitoring mechanisms. We have internal audit teams that go out and do surveys. We do an enormous amount of follow-up with individuals. But compared to the amount that gets wasted, 
in a conventional development project, which could be more than half the project getting wasted. The possibility that that somebody makes an investment that we don't necessarily approve of. And then even that is an interesting question. I mean, I had an interesting argument with somebody in California who observed that a 63-year-old lady in Rwanda who was living on only about $3 cash a month and looking after three grandchildren and living in a mud house with a leaking roof and sleeping on the floor, had spent $2 the money that we'd given her on a mattress. And he was demanding to know whether a mattress was a productive investment. And my slight answer to that, I guess, is we are trying to help the extreme poor. And if a 63-year-old lady has been sleeping on the floor for her whole life and she wants to spend $2 on a mattress, I think that's something that we should be comfortable with, not sort of worried about. I mean, as you look to the future, Rory, you know, you're, you're fairly new in this role as president of Give Directly. What's your kind of moonshot? Do you see it as, a, as an enormous sort of step change in the way that we give and the way that we allocate capital and perhaps the way that, you know, we do international development? Does this sit alongside traditional international development? I think that I'm hoping that we can radically transform the way that international development is done. At the moment, only about 2% of the entire international development spend is on cash. I think that number should be far, far higher, 60 70%. That doesn't mean everything should be cash. I mean, there's still obviously place for programs on anti-malaria or on vaccination. But if what you're fundamentally interested in is ending extreme poverty, there is nothing, I think, which is as effective as cash, partly because it is scalable, it's replicable in a way that other development programs aren't. There are many, many very good development programs, but many of them are very, very good at a very specific individual level. So you can run a very good clinic or a very good school with a heroic team and a fantastic head teacher or a great medical director, but it's very difficult to repeat it because you can't necessarily find that heroic team 10,000 times over. Cash is something which is very, very straightforward, easily monitored, easily delivered, straight through to someone's phone. We have very good academic understanding of how it's used. We can see the impact. And I think that if we're serious about ending global poverty, cash is an absolutely necessary part of that. So, you know, with all due deference to many, many good things that are being done in international development, I think that the next 10 years should be a decade where cash becomes central. And I think it does. We have a chance of ending extreme poverty across the world in our lifetimes. And Rory, I want to finish, as I always do on this podcast, with, with advice. What advice, and particularly to our younger listeners who perhaps are looking to pursue a career in international development, what advice would you give to them and what skills do they need to equip themselves with to be successful in the international development arena? I think there's a a range of things. I mean, I think one thing I would encourage listeners, young or old, to think about is their giving patterns and to think about just how much difference $550 can make in the life of somebody who's in extreme poverty, so let's say 450 pounds. And I don't know, I mean, different people have different views on this, but beginning to, even from quite a young age, setting a target in your life of giving let's say 10% of your income to charity is a good habit to develop and it can make an enormous difference. As I say, if the world gave only 0.1% of its annual income 
it could end extreme poverty. But unfortunately, not everybody's going to do that. So I, I'd encourage people to give a bit more. Apart from giving, I think to work in international development, the most important thing is to have a very strong sense of the lives of the extreme poor. And there's no substitute to being in the field, to spending time in remote rural communities, to learning other people's languages. It's not something that I believe can be primarily learned by doing a master's degree in international development. By all means, do that later, but begin by spending your time sitting in a rural community and understanding the shape and texture of a rural life. And it's all very well talking about extreme poverty, but you need to understand what it's like to have a cow that you can't find food for, or a village in which half the children can't go to school, or what it means when drought wipes out the entire maize crop, and what options are available for people in those situations, and why things like cash can make so much difference. Rory Stewart, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much indeed. That was terrific. Really fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Rory Stewart, the president of Give Directly. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. And as I said at the start, I would thoroughly encourage you to check out the website of Give Directly at givedirectly.org. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.